Uh, we're back in Hebrews, so uh, let's make a start on that. And I've called today's uh, message The Essential Science of Not Drifting. Classic, classic scripture there at the start of uh, Hebrews chapter 2. I'm just going to pray and we'll hook in. Jesus, you are, as uh, Hebrews says, the anchor of our souls, the one that holds us in the storms and in the calm because, God, uh, drifting is possible in calm and in storms. It's drifting is just possible because you're untethered, you're unanchored. And uh, God, I pray that today, that if there's uh, people drifting here today, that you draw them back into you and you'd anchor them in you. Amen. Hey, look, we, we took, it seemed, seemed to be forever, forever to go through the first four verses, and today you're probably going to pull a hammy, all right, because we're going to do right through to Hebrews 2 verse 1, okay? Here we go. Here's the... Uh, the verse at the start of uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. As my father always said, when you see a therefore in the Bible, you've got to ask, what's it there for? All right? And the reason why it's there is because of chapter 1. Okay? So the author's just said a whole bunch of things in chapter 1, and he's saying to you that you shouldn't drift because of what's in chapter 1, which is what we're going to deal with today. But let me ask you this question. Uh, where are you drifting? Where are you drifting? Drifting, I think, is just uh, its a pandemic in our culture and uh, it's, there's a lot of it going on in churches. I mean, there might even be some parts of you that are, that are locked down and anchored, but you know, there's probably a side to all of us where we're just kind of drifting. It's not tied down, it's not locked down, it's not anchored, it's just a little bit of a drift going on. You know, where it can be a little bit like a ship, uh, like this ship here. Let me show you this clip. This was uh, ABC News last night. A bulk cargo carrier adrift in the Coral Sea is tonight at risk of running aground on a shallow reef 175 nautical miles northeast of Cairns. The ship lost engine power last night en route to Townsville. The Hong Kong registered vessel ID Integrity has dumped its ballast hoping to clear Shark Reef with as little as a metre to spare. The captain alerted the Australian Maritime Safety Authority at around 6 o'clock last night. The CEO of Australian Reef Pilots says engineers have been working to restart the engine with rescue boats unlikely to reach the stricken ship until the morning. They would also be looking at what options they may have to pump the fuel oil out of the main tanks into tanks higher up in the ship so if she does run aground the risk of a major spill could be managed or reduced. The ship hadn't been able to drop its anchor to slow down because the surrounding waters are too deep. Out there in the Coral Sea, it's very isolated. Uh, There's a strong wind warning. Sea conditions are not conducive to a rescue. And so this is what I would term as being an uncontrolled event. In 2010, the bulk carrier Shenning One ran aground on the Great Barrier Reef near Gladstone, spilling more than three tonnes of heavy fuel oil and cutting a swathe through the reef. Elise Worthington, ABC News, Brisbane. This is a prime example of drift, all right? And the uh, comment made by the specialist there is he said there's an uncontrolled situation at the moment. And that's, uh, that's probably a good description of what drift is. You can go to the beach and you can see a gutter. Every year this school takes the 910 students to the beach at Alexandra Headlands and you go out there and there's often a gutter. And what happens when you're swimming? You take your feet off the bottom and you stop fighting, you stop standing still. Well, you just start to drift, don't you? And our culture's like that. Our culture has lots and lots of opportunities to drift. Um, 
there's lots of opportunities, isn't there, to be caught in a rip and just not to be ready for, uh, for what's happening and, and just not doing anything. Back on uh, June 30 a few years ago, and just she'll enjoy being here to, to hear this, but June 30, we go to the, uh, the beach at Calandra, around uh, about June every year, stay just near Kings Beach, and this one day the, the waves are just pumping, right? And I, uh, I love body surfing, so I'm just, I'm in there, right? It's June 30, it was a warm enough day, the water was cold, but it's always warm enough if the waves are good, right? So I go out and I'm swimming, and I caught this sensational wave, right? And I'm not even making this up. I caught it and I'm going down it and all of a sudden I felt my wedding ring slip off. My finger. Because the water's cold, right? And your fingers shrink. It's gone, you know? And don't, don't feel too tragic about it. I mean, I was, I was pretty sad about it. We got a metal detector guy to come out and see if he could find it. But and it was actually about my third wedding ring to the same woman, I should add. <laughs> it's about my third wedding ring because uh, the other one's broke from all the bar fights. No, I'm kidding. Uh, the other ones broke, they just had some kind of uh, fault in them and they just kept breaking. But, you know, that's a, another classic example that probably identifies this whole concept of drift, you know. It's just something that just slips, you know. And you didn't mean it to happen necessarily. You just probably weren't doing the right thing at the right time or you weren't standing with your feet on the sand. And so because your feet weren't on the sand, you just started drifting. And the writer of Hebrews is concerned about you and I think God's concerned about you and he's concerned about everyone who follows Jesus that you don't drift that you don't drift. So where are you drifting? You see, the truth is that no one ever just randomly out of the blue decides to go and commit adultery with their neighbour's wife or with their secretary. You see, you drift a little bit and then you drift a little bit more and then you drift a little bit more and all of a sudden it looks right. All of a sudden you're in a place, well, I didn't start there, I started way up the beach, but all of a sudden I'm right down the other end because I drifted. See, no one ever decides in a snap moment to get addicted to drugs or pornography. They just drift, little bit by little bit. No one in churches, I don't think, when they first come to faith, ever decides to to get obsessed with self-righteousness. It's just an incremental slow drift that goes on. You see, when you're not involved in biblical community, you drift. That's what happens. And the writer of Hebrews knows this because later on in the letter he actually says don't give up the habit of meeting together as some have been in the habit of doing. Don't give up meeting together. You drift. That's what happens when you give up meeting together. And it's not like it's a legalistic thing for the project that you need to come to church but this is your opportunity to not drift, to come to church on a Sunday morning. And see, people don't just go and make shipwreck of their faith just out of the blue. They stop coming and being part of biblical community. They stop coming to church on Sunday morning. They stop doing the things that actually are the things that are holding them down and that are anchoring them. And then all of a sudden, just bit by bit, they drift. There's always drift first. The interesting thing is that the writer of Hebrews knows this and he's talking to some people who are experiencing drift, right? But they're experiencing an interesting kind of drift. Like one of the things when you're preparing a sermon that they talk about is you need to work on the hermeneutics. And hermeneutics are, uh, no, sorry, the exegesis. Exegesis is where you've got to work out what the text meant to the original hearers. And then hermeneutics is what does it mean to us? And the best Bible texts are when what it meant to the original hearers fits really neatly with us. And this one doesn't. All right. But I hope that you can see by the end it kind of does, but in a different way to what you would think. 
The truth is that the Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews is writing to people who are experiencing drifting because of angels. Check this out. This is how often he mentions angels. You got it in Hebrews 1, 4, 5, 6, 7, 7 and 13. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For since the message declared by angels... 2 verse 5, now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. 2 verse 7, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. 2 verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. 2.16, for it surely it is not angels that he helps. 12.22, but you've come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Hebrews 13.2, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Do you get this? I mean, the truth is probably a bunch of you have come, maybe all of you have come today, and you're not at risk of drifting because of angels. Probably we're at the other end of the spectrum. And I think part of this reason is due to the scientific approach that our culture has got. And I was going to show you a uh, clip from Richard Dawkins, but I decided not to. But this really hard-nosed scientific ethic that goes on in our culture that you have to be able to prove everything scientifically to, uh, to actually believe in it, except love, of course, which makes a bit of a mess of the theory. But that's really what our culture believes. And I actually think that what's happened is uh, that kind of thinking has actually filtered its way into uh, theologians and probably, maybe not into all churches, but into some churches because... I'm not going to be able to scientifically prove that there are angels today. So what do we do with it? And typically, I think in the circles that I've mixed in, well, we just don't talk about angels anymore. But the writer of Hebrews is. He's talking about angels. And at the end of the day, this church, I'm just telling you today that we believe in angels because the Bible teaches that angels exist and it tells us some stuff about what they do. All right? But the really interesting thing about it is you end up with one of two extremes. You end up... When people, some people get right into angels and demons and they just get obsessed with it and then others just leave it alone because you can't scientifically prove it and it's just a little bit of an awkward one because you've just kind of got to believe that it's true. See, our culture generally thinks that thing up there is pretty close to an angel, right? A fat, naked kid with wings and a bow and arrow, all right? Um, and if you, uh, if you actually... Uh, Look at the definition of cherub uh, in the dictionary. A cherub is a winged angelic being described in biblical tradition as, a, as attending on God. Now, they don't look like that in the biblical description, but somehow through history, society has transitioned from this awesome figure of an angel through to a fat, naked baby with wings and a bow and arrow, all right? which is pretty pathetic. And one thing that's really disturbing, if you ever call your wife, an angel is that angels in the Bible are never female. They've always got a male orientation. All right? So that just gets really weird. All right? So don't go home and say, oh, baby, you're my angel, because that's weird. All right? We don't condone that kind of stuff at this church. So angels are not like this, right? So there's lots of times in the Bible where it talks about angels. I just want to give you a couple of, uh, about three different examples of where the Bible talks about angels that are totally at the other end of the spectrum to this one. Here's the first one. David gets this really cool idea that he wants to, uh, that he's going to count all of the people in his nation, right? But it's all coming out of pride and wanting, wanting to be self-sufficient and be able to survive on his own, all right? Now, God generally doesn't like people who are proud, so it's a big problem, huge problem. God comes down to David and he says, uh, 
basically I'm going to punish you, you choose uh, the punishment, here are your options. And uh, here's what happens. The Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. This angel's a tank, right? This angel goes out and kills 70,000 people on its own. Men. That's not a naked, flying, chubby baby, all right? A chubby kid. That is a tanky being, all right? Here we go. You've got this other example. Uh, this is a fascinating example. This is where uh, King Hezekiah is being uh, besieged by Sennacherib, um, king of Assyria. And uh, listen to what Sennacherib says in 2 Kings 19, verse 10 to 11. He says, Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and you shall be delivered. Question mark. So he's just going, your God's lying to you because as I came along, he said to Hezekiah, just relax, God's going to come through. And, Hezekiah, and uh, Sennacherib goes, he's not coming through, he's lying to you. And if you've been a Christian long enough and you've read enough of the Bible, someone calling God a liar is not a cool thing to do. All right? And generally, soon after that, it begins to hurt most, well, sometimes physically. Check out what happens. And that night, the angel of the Lord, like one, went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. So don't call God a liar, alright? Just get the angel out there. One angel goes out, works him over. Here we go. What about Herod? This is in the book of Acts. On an appointed day, Herod put on his, th- his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Pride. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. These are tough beings, created beings, and that's what we firmly believe the Bible teaches. Angels are created beings by God. Demons are too. They started as angels, but they decided they wanted to be God and you can't do that because if God stops being God, then he's not God anymore and you just can't stop him being God. So they ended up losing, which is what always happens when you want to be God. And uh, they got booted out of heaven. And so now we've got this situation where you've got created created beings, angels, and created beings, demons. And at some level, it looks like they fight against each other. All right? Now, the weird thing is, we kind of think we're, because we can't see it, we're just sitting in a hall and this is all that's happening. And that's really what naturalism says, is what you can see and what you can test and what you can scientifically prove is all that's happening. I'm telling you, it's not. It's not all that's happening. See, the truth is, if you um, saw an angel, if we had an angel who somehow I organised to pay an appearance fee for an angel to come and to stand up the front here in front of you, honestly, every single one of us would be tempted to worship because they are impressive. They're very impressive. Check this. This is out of uh, Colossians 2, verse 18 to 19. The early church had some issues with this. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions puffed up, up, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Rah, rah, rah. So in Colossae, 
you've got the issue that the people are actually worshipping angels. So maybe it's probably true that the church in Colossae has probably got a more accurate view about what angels are than we do when we're not tempted to worship them because they're awesome, they're incredible. Check this out in Revelation. This is uh, John in Revelation. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things and when I heard and saw them I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. This is the guy that was like the disciple that Jesus loved. He knows lots of stuff. He's hanging out with Jesus. He's probably pretty old at this point in time. And he works out that the best thing that he needs to do, for whatever reason, is I've just got to fall on my face and worship this angel because it is amazing. And what they've shown me is amazing. What does the angel say? The angel said to me, you must not do that. Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. This is really interesting because, uh, as I said at the start, part of the problem with this text is you just go, how does that land over the top of us? Well, this last scripture tells you how it lands over the top of of us because it's about worship. And this is really what the writer of Hebrews is saying. I don't think he's really getting massively obsessed with angels. He's saying, you will drift, and this is a lesson for all of us, you will drift when your worship drifts. And the people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to started worshipping angels and they started drifting. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't worship angels because you'll drift. Now, some of you who have been here long enough um, know that I get into some weird conversations when I get my hair cut. All right, I got my hair cut yesterday. I should be in some kind of hairdresser's black book. I'm in the Jehovah's Witness one, I think, but the uh, hairdresser's black book. Anyway, I, I went and got my hair cut in at Grand Central yesterday, and uh, I got this dude who's been in Australia about six months from Birmingham. And, uh, you know, he didn't know it. He probably hadn't, wasn't even thinking about it, but we had a whole conversation about worship. And... Uh, because the bottom line is everything's always about worship. You, you don't, actually don't sin unless there's worship involved in it. So he started telling me how when he was 13, he uh, used to go home from school, 13 or 14, he'd go home from school, he'd get changed, he'd, I don't know, he'd put on makeup or whatever it was. He wasn't that kind of guy, but, you know, find some sort of way to make himself look older. And then he'd literally go down and hit the pubs. And his mum and dad knew. And he wasn't just hitting the pubs to have a couple of drinks, he was hitting the pubs to have a lot of drinks. And, he just, and he's done this the whole way through. And at some level, he had some sort of worship thing going on. So I started asking him a, a few questions. I said, why do you reckon it is? I said, there's some really, really clear evidence about um, how alcohol actually damages human beings biologically. Why, why do you reckon people keep doing that? Which is really, underneath, to be honest, is really a worship question. What are they wanting to get out of it? Because it's hurting them. And this is the uh, irony of human beings, isn't it? That we do a lot of things that kill us, piece by piece. All right? Anyway, and so he said, well, I guess they, uh, they, just, they just want to have fun and they're just not thinking about tomorrow. I said, why wouldn't you be thinking about tomorrow? Wouldn't it make sense to think about 10 years down the track and whether you're actually going to be in some uh, liver ward because your liver doesn't work anymore, which is what they're finding now. They're finding that people in their early 30s are actually... Uh, having issues with their liver that they never had, uh, they haven't had previously because you've got stronger alcohol, stronger drinks, vodka's cheaper and of course we're talking about how you can get home brand vodka in England and how that just messes with stuff in people's bodies. And uh, he just, what it all came down 
two for him and as far as he observed is that these people just wanted to have fun. They only wanted to live for today. And the Bible would say to people like that, you're a fool. You are a fool. The Bible says you don't ever just live for today. You plan. You think about the future. You make wise decisions. But you know, at some level, what these, he's doing and what young people are doing that he was talking about is they're worshipping pleasure, they're worshipping fun, they're worshipping something there, that, and alcohol gets them there. Alcohol is their functional saviour to get them there. And this is a really important theme in the project because uh, we think all of us, all of you, and uh, all of the leadership, everyone here is an unceasing worshipper. We just worship all the time. So when you stop worshipping God, when you stop worshipping Jesus, you just find something else. Now, obviously, the Hebrews found angels. But you and I probably are not going to tend towards switching to worshipping angels. We'll find something else that we'll worship. And probably a really big one in churches sometimes, I think, is we worship family. And usually we find something to worship that's not a bad thing in itself. It's just when it gets put in the wrong place, it becomes a bad thing. So we're going to have a little test, right? So I didn't even plan on doing this. This is late. This is a late mail, all right? So I'm walking through Grand Central. And I'm just seeing stuff. I'm just going, that's worship and that's worship. So I'm standing there in Grand Central taking photos of stuff, right? Thought I'd give you a little quiz today, see if you can work these out. What people are worshipping in these. Here's the first one. This is uh, the Boost Juice Bar. Check that out. Love life and life will love you right back. Who's the uh, object of worship there? Yourself. All right? It's got to know this because this is what our culture does all the time. The marketing machine is all about marketing worship to you. It's trying to get you to worship something. Here's another one. It's a little bit small, but you might be able to just see in there. This is at the Telstra shop. Watch what you want. When you want, only pay for what you want. Who are you worshipping there? Yourself. You see that? Put yourself in the centre. If you get a tea box, you can be in the middle of everything. Worship yourself. This one's a little bit harder. It's, I think it's probably leaning toward a couple of different versions of worship. This was the one that really got me started. I saw this and I thought, geez, that is just overt. What about that? Isn't that interesting? This sign is all about worship. All about it. And it's playing on worship of sex to get you to worship their cereal. Isn't it? Yeah, that, that's ridiculous. I mean, if any, seriously, if anyone, if anyone got to that point where they can't stop devouring cereal with their eyes, they're a slave of crunchy nut, right? you'd probably say they're a crunchy nut. All right? You need to go and get counselling. But this is exactly what the marketing industry is all about and this is exactly why it's so successful because we all worship and they're just trying to get you to worship something else. And this is the exact problem that we've actually got in the uh, book of Hebrews is that people are not worshipping Jesus. They're worshipping angels. And we actually see this in uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verse 24 to 25 says that God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies, so sexual depravity, among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So your two options are you either worship God or you worship something that's created and angels qualify in that category. Bottom line. And everything else. All right? 
And it's the most ridiculous, ridiculous thing. Like It's like you get in this fishbowl of worshipping something and you think it all makes so much sense and it's so logical and it's so rational and people outside the bowl are going, you're an idiot, Like, what are you even worshipping that for? And dudes at, at, at the school here, and apparently the average uh, computer game user is 35, apparently I heard, right? So you got dudes spending bulk amounts of time. I mean, I've, there's a student in the school spends, uh, I think they said to me the other day, they spend 15 hours a day on holidays playing computer games, right? And my big comment to dudes who do this is, uh, you know what happens, you, you know, you're just a pixel warrior and you know what happens when the power goes out? You go from being a pixel warrior to a nobody, all right? Because no one's getting on an exercise bike trying to generate the power to keep running the internet and their Xbox because it's too hard to play well when you do that. And everyone stands around and you go, that is, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You are a slave to that thing. You worship that thing, you're a slave to it, it's got control over you. And from the outside the fishbowl, you're kind of going, that is really, really stupid. But from inside the fishbowl, it makes perfect sense. Which is why putting another plug in for biblical community. That's why you need biblical community. That's why you should be in a community group. That's why you should marry someone who doesn't say you're the most wonderful person in the world every day for the next 25 years, all right? Because you need someone to pop your bubble, all right, and smash the fishbowl and just go, that's really dumb. What are you doing that for? In a loving way. <laughs> Maybe sometimes it doesn't sound loving, but that's really... What are, you, what are you worshipping that for? And we worship some of the dumbest things. Harold Best made this comment about uh, worship. He said, um, at this very moment and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone, an artefact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit or God through Christ. Everyone is being shaped thereby and is growing up towards some measure of fullness, whether of righteousness or evil. No one is exempt and no one can wish to be. We are, every one of us, unceasing worshippers and will remain so forever. Surrender to the sinfulness of sin unto infinite loss or the commitment of personal righteousness unto infinite gain. And this is really what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You can go for angels, you can go for anything else, or you can go for Jesus. If you go for anything else, it's going to be infinite loss and you're just going to drift and you'll just be gone. You just All of a sudden you're... 50 k's away. Listen to, uh, this is off news.com.au about the ship that is adrift at the moment as we speak. At its current rate and direction of drift, it could possibly go aground sometime around 8 or 9 p.m. tonight. That's, I think that's tonight if they can't get the main engine going or they can't get an emergency response vessel to it. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He goes, if we don't get a rescue vehicle to you, if we don't get the engine going in the middle, you're going to run aground. You will run aground. Happens all the time. So here's his technique. You know what he does? He, he, he takes angels and he says, let's make a quick comparison between angels and, angels and Jesus and see who comes up trumps. Here we go. Angels are a messenger. That's kind of what their name means. In verse 4, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus' name is Son. Son is better than messenger. Everyone cool with that? Way better. Then in verse 5, he says, uh, Angels are made by God. 
actually says about Jesus, he's begotten of God. He's family. He's not just made. He's not just a creation. He's actually family. And more than that, I read in one commentary they said that uh, this quote out of the Psalms, I think it is, was something that they would say at a coronation ceremony for a king. And so part of what the uh, writer of Hebrews is saying here is Jesus is crowned. He reigns as king. And that is way, way, way better than just being a creation of God. Angels are a creation of God. In verse 5 it says Jesus is the son of the father. Angels are commanded to worship Jesus. Jesus is the recipient of worship. Like he's so much better. And You see what the writer of Hebrews is doing? He's going, don't get sidetracked because they're not as good. Stay here. Then in verse 7 and 9 and 10, the angels, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, are winds and flame of fire, but uh, in verse 9 and 10 it says Jesus is the eternal king. That's better. And you're looking at it, you kind of go, well, wind's pretty good. Wind and flames of fire are pretty good. That'd be handy. I could square a few things up on this planet if I had wind and a few flames of fire. But the writer of Hebrews says, nah, it's pathetic in comparison. He's the eternal king. Angels serve in the presence of God and Jesus sits at the right hand of God and his enemies are basically what he wipes his feet on. That's way better. Don't get distracted. So, this is really, really critical. One of the ways that you can wage war and to not drift in your faith is that you need to get good at comparisons, like the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, compare, 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 compare. All right? And part of the problem, I think, with sin and with worshipping false gods is that you don't actually stop long enough a lot of the time to do the comparison. You keep your mind preoccupied, you're deceived by the lie that's inherent in it, as Romans 1 says, and so you just get sucked into it, and you just do it, and then you drift. And the writer of Hebrews would say, be wise, pull up, stop, and just make a quick comparison before you do this. So let's do this with a couple of things. A couple of things that are precious to our culture are... One of them is sex and sexual gratification. When this is probably the number one promotional tool trying to suck you into worship. You know, like the weird thing about sex is that it actually doesn't last that long. You know, and you've even got stories uh, in the Old Testament. I think it's uh, Amnon and Tamar, David's son, who uh, desperately just uh, wanted to sleep with his half-sister, have sex with her, and uh, so he gets together with someone else and they work out a plan. So you, you hop in bed and act really sick and Tamar will come in and, uh, and then uh, she'll come in to help you out because you're crook and then you can grab her, which is what happens. And then he rapes her. And then it says after that that he despised her. You see, the act and the gratification is so incredibly short and what often happens, and I'm seeing this at the moment in the school, talking to some uh, girls in the school, where dudes have taken advantage of them and used them, is that the act is really short and then the despising comes after that a lot of the time. The pleasure just doesn't last. And the, the crazy thing is that every Lincoln movie that comes out, every sitcom on TV, they're all saying, this is what you need to aim for, man. This is like the pinnacle of all pleasure. Come and get it and it might last 15 minutes and then it's over. It just evaporates. But in the Psalms we read this. You make known to me the path of life. 
In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures. Pleasures for how long? Forever. There's your comparison, isn't it? There's your comparison, like 15 minutes forever. Like, why would you choose 15 minutes? But that's, that's kind of the whole, one of the whole flows in our cultures. We're choosing the 15 minutes. We're choosing the cheap thrill, the cheap pleasure that maybe lasts for five minutes. When you only have to talk to someone who's been a slave to pornography for a long period of time, that the, and unfortunately, increasingly, girls are getting involved in porn. And the pleasure from it all lasts so, so, for such a short time. It just doesn't last. And God stands there the whole time and says, you come to me. Just come and be in my presence. Come and be in my presence and it will be pleasure forever. The best. It's like top shelf. Top shelf pleasure forever and ever. And unfortunately, what we do a lot of the times is we, by not making the comparison and working it through well, we say to God, I don't believe you. I don't believe you're going to come through for me. I don't think it's going to be as good as you say. So I'm going to believe the lie and not you. Because the lie's got me. I reckon that's going to come through. I reckon that one, that sexuality thing, it's going to pay dividends for me. Here's another one. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've got to read you this quote. This is by Aldous Huxley. Right? Aldous Huxley was an English writer. Um, he wrote this. He actually was an atheist guy. Right? Didn't even believe God existed. This is classic. If you ever go to war against atheists, you want to take this quote. I can give this one to you because this is classic. He said this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. He's saying, I wanted things to not have meaning so I could be liberated. The liberation we desired was simultaneous liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. Look at so this guy's not, I've looked at the evidence and I'm an atheist. He's going, I don't want to be bound by anything, so I'm an atheist. And this last sentence is the classic. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. So at some level, Aldous Huxley has looked at religion, looked at the concept of God and said, I value sexual freedom and doing whatever I want higher than God. And I'm going to worship that. I'm persuaded. That is intense. Seriously, if you ever talk to any atheists, if you have conversations with atheists, no, just email me. I'll give you this quote. It probably will be quite helpful to you because they always tend to argue from the point of view that they're the ones that aren't biased and the Christians, the religious people, are the biased people. But the truth is, uh, I think sometimes you can get some that aren't as biased, but uh, there's a fair bit behind some of it. Second one's this, Money. This is 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 to 19. Check out the comparison that Paul does here about uh, money and possessions. As for the rich in this present age, which is all of us, worldwide, we're the rich people. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see the comparison there? If you worship riches... They're really uncertain and you might lose them all. So he says, worship God, who's a generous giver. That's way better. 
You'd rather be with someone who's a generous giver than just depend upon a finite amount of stuff. Doesn't that make sense? Make a good comparison. So don't, so rich people, don't depend upon the uncertainty of riches. Who the heck knows what's going to happen in Greece? Seriously, Greece could go down, the whole uh, Europe block could go down, we could have... I mean, in Spain at the moment, I think up to the 24-year-olds, 18 to 24-year-olds, there's 50% of them unemployed. It's uncertain. This whole thing could hit the wall, and some of you who are prone to being anxious, you go, oh, no, <laughs> or I need to go withdraw, withdraw all my money out of the bank like they're doing in Spain at the moment. But the Bible doesn't say go and get your money out of the bank and put it under your mattress and in your ceiling. It says rich people depend upon God because he richly provides you with everything to enjoy and he'll look after you. It's a good comparison. So don't worship riches, don't worship money, worship God. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share because they know that it doesn't run out from someone who's generous, who owns everything. God owns everything. He's generous. He wants to give to you. It's not going to run out, so be generous about it. Thus storing up treasure for themselves. Here's another comparison. He's saying, don't store up a little bit of treasure here because the treasure you store up in heaven is way better. So store that up. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. So rich people can be obsessed about stuff and have a little bit and only have a little bit and not really have life. Well, they can have lots of life. They can be connected to the one who generously gives. It's a hands-down winner to be connected to God oh yeah comfort this is a massively deceptive little uh, worship thing comfort it's just easier not to do anything it's just we just get a nice house and get a couple of nice cars and maybe we sit in a nice warm house we have a nice TV and Maybe some kind of recorder so I can watch TV shows whenever I want and we just get nice and comfortable. We've got a pantry full of food and a fridge full of food and uh, at the bottom of your heart just kind of go, I'm, I'm all sweet. I've got everything I need. There's a story that Jesus uh, told about this, uh, a guy who uh, harvested some stuff and he didn't have enough room in his barns so he built bigger barns and he just kept filling up his barns and this is what happens at the end. Because he gets to the point where he goes, I've got it all, I'm kind of sorted out, nice and comfortable, so uh, we'll just roll into, uh, into retirement, I guess. But God said to him, Phil, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus does the comparison. He says, don't get comfortable. Don't just store it all up and go, I'm all sweet. James chapter 4 uh, speaks about this, uh, this arrogance that underlies uh, comfort. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And James is saying, don't think you've got your nice little comfortable life, you've got everything planned out and everything sorted and it's all going to go the way that you think it's going to go. Because a lot of times, it doesn't. And at the end of the day, God's the one that's in control and you're better to go to God and to worship Him. I just want to finish up with this. 
I need to give you a good word on angels, right? Because I've kind of trashed them a little bit, so I'm going to read you some stories, a couple of stories, okay? Because Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 is probably the most prominent verse in the Bible about the purpose of angels. It goes like this. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? He's saying that God made angels and he sends angels and he tasks them up to serve you and to help you. That's a job. Now, you can't see them, but I'm telling you, today there'll be angels that will be helping you today. You don't know how they're going to be helping you, but they will. Billy Graham wrote a... uh, He's probably the most famous evangelist in the world uh, and I would say by far and away the most respected evangelist, probably, maybe... It's lived for maybe hundreds of years, I would suspect. It's had a huge influence in the world teaching uh, people about Jesus and there's countless people that have come to faith through uh, Billy Graham's ministry. And he wrote uh, this book called Angels. And I've got a couple of stories out of it that I'm just going to read you about angels. A celebrated Philadelphia neurologist had gone to bed after an exceptionally tiring day. Suddenly he was awakened by someone knocking on his door. These are true stories that people have told him and that he's investigated. Opening it, he found a little girl, poorly dressed and deeply upset. She told him her mother was very sick and asked him if he would please come with her. It was a bitterly cold, snowy night, and though he was bone-tied, the doctor dressed and followed the girl. As the Reader's Digest story reports the story, he found the mother desperately ill with pneumonia. After arranging for medical care, he complimented the sick woman on the intelligence and persistence of her little daughter. The woman looked at him strangely and then said, My daughter died a month ago. She added, Her shoes and coat are in the clothes closet there. Amazed and perplexed, the doctor went to the closet and opened the door. There hung the very coat worn by the little girl who had brought him to tend to her mother. It was warm and dry and could not possibly have been out in a wintry night. Isn't that good? Reverend John G. Patton, pioneer missionary in the New Hebrides Islands, told a thrilling story involving the protective care of angels. Hostile natives surrounded his mission headquarters one night, intent on burning the Pattons out and killing them. John Patton and his wife prayed all during that terror-filled night that God would deliver them. When daylight came, they were amazed to see that unaccountably the attackers had left. They thanked God for delivering them. A year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Jesus Christ and Mr. Patton, remembering what had happened, asked the chief what had kept him and his men from burning the house down to the ground and killing them. The chief replied in surprise, Who were all those men you had with you there? The missionary answered, There were no men here, just my wife and I. The chief argued that they had seen many men standing guard, hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. They seemed to circle the mission station so that the natives were afraid to attack. Only then did Mr. Patton realise that God had sent his angels to protect them. The chief agreed that there was no other explanation. Could it be that God had sent a legion of angels to protect his servants whose lives were being endangered? I'll make this the last one. A Persian coal portier. Is that it? Did I say that right? I don't know. You don't know, so yes, I did. All right was accosted by a man who asked him if he had a right to sell Bibles. Well, yes, he answered, we're allowed to sell these books anywhere in the country. The man looked puzzled and asked, how is it then 
that you are always surrounded by soldiers. I planned three times to attack you, and each time seeing the soldiers, I left you alone. Now I no longer want to harm you. Who were they? God sent angels to help you in the past and he'll continue to use them to help you. That's their job. A couple of scriptures and then uh, I'm going to get someone just to share a song. I love this. This is one of my favourite verses in the whole Bible. Psalm 34, verse 6 to 7. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Now, I read the commentaries on this and the whole way through my, my life it's just sounded to me like there's some preacher in a Service somewhere going, see this poor guy over here? God heard him. They're just picking people out. And lo and behold, the smart guys are saying that that's probably what was happening. They've just picked someone out and just gone, look at this poor man. He cried out to the Lord and God heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord in camps. He's not dropping in for five minutes, right? He's setting up a perimeter. He's got his swag out. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. If you had someone like this and and they were doing that for you, can you see how you'd be tempted to worship them? But God wants you to worship him and just be really, really thankful that he sends along angels to help you out. Who knows what could have happened to you in the last two years? Who knows what things were averted by his messengers by his helpful servants that he said look you know i can just see you know there's someone you know the project didn't even exist but you know it's like there's someone in the project down there maybe six months ago and we'll take six months ago and look they're just going to need some help so barry can you just i don't know whether angels are called barry but be an australian angel for sure wouldn't he all right barry can you just this is living barry can you just go down and that person needs some help she needs some help. He needs help. Can you guys get it done? I mean, if, a, if an angel on, his, on its own can slaughter 185,000 Assyrians, uh, we'd probably one will be plenty for all of us. Wouldn't it? We'd be able to get that done. And so in all of this, what you should be hearing is God's heart to care for you and to love you. He has a really caring heart. And he's not just, oh, man, he gets surprised by something that happens and he goes, Oh, strike, I wasn't ready for that, but hey, we'll get this. No, he knew it was going to happen, and he's, he's an administrator. And he's organised. And he knows the things that are going to happen this week for you. And he's already organised to give you the help that you need to get you across the line, because he's made a guarantee to you that you will not fall and leave him as a result of his failure. It will not be his failure. That will mean that you fall and you drift right away from him. He will do everything required to make sure that you don't drift. Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. He's up there and he's just manager of the angels, CEO of the angels and I need you over here and I need you here and I need you in Highfields right here and you're going to need to be in Toowoomba and you're going to need to be in Sydney because there's some issues going on down there and I can see the devil's up to something and he's got some demons together and they've got a bit of a force and they're going to make a mess of things so we're just going to go and counter that and he's just organising things to make sure all of the people that are his get looked after. Isn't that good? Just going to invite uh, Nathan Hitsky up. Just want him... Uh, 
just to sing this song. I had a discussion between Diff and Nathan and I about worship songs that have really absolute lyrics. And uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a struggle sometimes because James seems to be pretty clear that if you hear the word and you don't do anything about it, you actually deceive yourself. And I think in some ways when we sing worship songs that have got really absolute lyrics like I'll never ever turn away from you and then we don't even mean it, it's, we're almost building some kind of self-deception into it. Um, and this is one of those songs. This is a really meaningful song to me. I don't know how many times I've listened to this song. But this song is really on about what the writer of Hebrews is on about. Just make it none but Jesus. He's, he's the best. You just want to just worship none but Jesus. And you might want to sing it. The idea wasn't to actually have a congregational song. But if you're in the place where you can sing this and that's true for you, maybe sing. That would be a good thing to do. But if you're not, just meditate on it. And maybe you could pray and you could say to God, please, can you just help me? to get to the place where this would be a a song that I could sing from my heart and it would be true. And I'm not being distracted by worship of other things, but I'm just moving and leaning into you. And you're it. You're it for me. It's, It's none but Jesus. You know, the song talks in the first verse there about the quiet and the stillness. The second verse there, it talks about chaos and confusion. See, worship's an issue everywhere across everything. I might pray for you and then uh, Nathan can sing. Jesus, you're supreme. You're not just supreme in power and influence. You're supreme in intimacy and care and love. And uh, we just want to pay tribute to you. We don't want to get distracted and worship angels or ignore them. We want to thank you for angels. Thank you for sending sending them to us to help us. Thanks that all of that's coming out of your loving, caring, protective heart for us.